Section 4 of The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life by Homer Eon Flint. Part 1 The Discovery. Chapter 4 The Library. I thought you'd never get back, complained the doctor crossly when the three entered. They had been gone just half an hour. Next moment he was studying their faces, and at once he demanded the most important fact. They told him, and before they had finished he was halfway into another suit. He was all eagerness, but somehow the three were very glad to be inside the cube again, and firmly insisted upon moving to another spot before making further explorations. Within a minute or two the cube was hovering opposite the upper floor of the building the three had entered, and with only a foot of space separating the window of the sky car and the dust-covered wall, the men from the earth inspected the interior at considerable length. They flashed a searchlight all about the place, and concluded that it was the receiving room, where the raw iron billets were brought via the elevator, and from there slid to the floor below. At one end, in exactly the same location as the desk Smith had destroyed, stood another, with a low and remarkably broad chair beside it. So far as could be seen, there were neither doors, window panes, nor shutters through the structure. To get all the light and air they could, guessed the doctor, perhaps that's why the buildings are all triangular, most wall surface in proportion to floor area that way. A few hundred feet higher they began to look for prominent buildings. Only in forgetful moments did either of them scan the landscape for signs of life. They knew now that there could be none. "'We ought to learn something there,' the doctor said after a while, pointing out a particularly large, squat, irregularly built affair on the edge of the business district. The architect, however, was in favor of an exceptionally large, high building in the isolated group previously noted in the suburbs. But because it was nearer, they maneuvered first in the direction of the doctor's choice. The sky car came to rest in a large plaza, opposite what appeared to be the structure's main entrance. From their window the explorers saw that the squat effect was due only to the space the edifice covered, for it was an edifice, a full five stories high. The doctor was impatient to go. Smith was willing enough to stay behind. He was already joyously examining the strange machine he had found. Two minutes later, Kinney, Van Emmon, and Jackson were standing before the portals of the great building. There they halted, and no wonder. The entire face of the building could now be seen to be covered with a mass of carvings. For the most part they were statues in bas-relief. All were fantastic in the extreme, but whether purposely so or not there was no way to tell. Certainly any such work on the part of an earthly artist would have branded him either as insane or as an incomprehensible genius. Directly above the entrance was a group which might have been labeled the Triumph of the Brute. An enormously powerful man, nearly as broad as he was tall, stood exulting over his victim, a less robust figure, prostrate under his feet. Both were clad in armor. The victor's face was distorted into a savage snarl, startlingly hideous by reason of the prodigious size of his head, planted as it was directly upon his shoulders, for he had no neck. 
His eyes were set so close together that at first glance they seemed to be but one. His nose was flat and African in type, while his mouth, devoid of curves, was simply revolting in its huge, thick-lipped lack of proportion. His chin was square and aggressive, his forehead, strangely enough, extremely high and narrow rather than low and broad. His victim lay in an attitude that indicated the most agonizing torture. His head was bent completely back and around behind his shoulders. On the ground lay two battle-axes, huge affairs, almost as heavy as the massively muscled men who had used them. But the eyes of the explorers kept coming back to the fearsome face of the conqueror. From the brows down he was simply a huge, brutal giant. Above his eyes he was an intellectual. The combination was absolutely frightful. The beast looked capable of anything, of overcoming any obstacle, mental or physical, internal or external, in order to assert his apparently enormous will. He could control himself or dominate others with equal ease and assurance. "'It can't be that he was drawn from life,' said the doctor with an effort. It wasn't easy to criticize that figure, lifeless though it was. On a planet like this, with such slight gravitation, there's no need for such huge strength. The typical Mercurian should be tall and flimsy in build, rather than short and compact. But the geologists differed. We want to remember that the Earth has no standard type. Think what a difference there is between the mosquito and the elephant, the snake and the spider. One would suppose that they had been developed under totally different planetary conditions, instead of all right on the same globe. No, I think this monster may have been genuine. And with that the geologist turned to examine the other statuary. Without exception it resembled the central group. All the figures were necklace, and all much more heavily built than any people on earth. There were several female figures. They had the same general build, and in every case were so placed as to enhance the glory of the males. In one group the woman was offering up food and drink to a resting worker. In another she was being carried off, struggling in the arms of a fairly good-looking warrior. Dr. Kinney led the way into the building. As in the other structure there was no door. The space seemed to be but one story in height, although that had the effect of a cathedral. The whole of the ceiling, irregularly arched in a curious pointed manner, was ornamented with grotesque figures, while the walls were also partially formed of squat, semi-human statues set upon huge triangular shafts. In the spaces between these outlandish pilasters there had once been some sort of decorations. A great many photos were taken here. As for the floor, it was divided in all directions by low walls. About five and a half feet in height, these walls separated the great room into perhaps a hundred triangular compartments, each about the size of an ordinary living room. Broad openings, about five feet square, provided free access from one compartment to any other. The men from the earth, by standing on tiptoes, could see over and beyond this system. "'Wonder if these walls were supposed to cut off the view,' speculated the doctor. I mean, do you suppose that the Mercurians were such short people as that? His question had to go unanswered. They stepped into the nearest compartment, and were all on the point of pronouncing it bare, when Jackson, with an exclamation, excitedly brushed away some of the dust and showed that the presumably solid walls were really chests of drawers, shallow things of that peculiar metal, 
These drawers numbered several hundred to the compartment. In the whole building there must have been millions. Once more the dust was carefully removed, revealing a layer of those curious rolls or reels, exactly similar to what had been found in the tool chest in the shell works. A careful examination of the metallic tape showed nothing whatever to the naked eye, although the doctor fancied that he made out some strange characters on the little boxes themselves. His view was shortly proved. Finding drawer after drawer to contain a similar display, varying from one to a dozen of the diminutive ribbons, Van Emmon adopted the plan of gently blowing away the dust from the faces of the drawers before opening them. This revealed the fact that each of the shallow things was neatly labeled. Instantly the three were intent upon their fresh clue. The markings were very faint and delicate, the slightest touch being enough to destroy them. To the untrained eye they resembled ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. To the archaeologist they meant that a brand new system of ideographs had been found. Suddenly Jackson straightened up and looked about with a new interest. He went to one of the square doorways and very carefully removed the dust from a small plate on the lintel. He need not have been so careful. Engraved in the solid metal was a single character, plainly in the same language as the other ideographs. The architect smiled triumphantly into the inquiring eyes of his friends. "'I won't have to eat my hat,' said he. "'This is a sure enough city, all right, and this is the library.' Smith was still busy on the little machine when they returned to the cube. He said that one part of it had disappeared, and was busily engaged in filing a bit of steel to take its place. As soon as it was ready, he thought they could see what the apparatus meant." The three had brought a large number of the reels. They were confident that a microscopic search of the ribbons would disclose something to bear out Jackson's theory that the great structure was really a repository for books, or whatever corresponded with books on Mercury. "'But the main thing,' said the doctor enthusiastically, "'is to get over to the Twilight Band. I'm beginning to have all sorts of wild hopes.' Jackson urged that they first visit the big mansion on the outskirts of this place, he said he felt sure, somehow, that it would be worthwhile. But Van Emmon backed up the doctor, and the architect had to be content with an agreement to return in case their trip was futile. Inside of a few minutes the cube was being drawn steadily over toward the left or western edge of the planet's sunlit face. As it moved, all except Smith kept close watch on the ground below. They made out town after town, as well as separate buildings, and on the roads were to be seen a great many of those octagonal structures, all motionless. After several hundred miles of this, the surface abruptly sloped toward what had clearly been the bed of an ocean. No sign of habitations here, however, so apparently the water had disappeared after the humans had gone. The ancient sea ended a short distance from the district they were seeking. A little more travel brought them to a point where the sun cast as much shadow as light on the surface. It was here they descended, coming to rest on a sunlit knoll which overlooked a small, building-filled valley. According to Kinney's apparatus, there was about one-fortieth the amount of air that exists on the earth. Of water vapor there was a trace, but all their search revealed no human life. Not only that, but there was no trace of lower animals. There was not even a lizard, much less a bird, and even the most ancient-looking of the sculptures showed no creatures of the air, 
only huge antediluvian monsters were ever depicted. They took a great many photos as a matter of course. Also they investigated some of the big octagonal machines in the streets, finding them to be similar to the great tanks that were used in the war, except that they did not have the characteristic caterpillar tread. Their eight faces were so linked together that the entire affair could roll, after a jolting, slab-sided, flopping fashion. Inside were curious engines and sturdy machines designed to throw the cannon shells they had seen. No explosive was employed, apparently, but centrifugal force generated in whirling wheels. Apparently these cars or chariots were universally used. The explorers returned to the cube, where they found that Smith, happening to look out a window, had spied a pond not far off. The three visited it, and found on its banks the first green stuff they had seen, a tiny, flowerless, salt grass, very scarce. It bordered a slimy, bluish pool of absolutely still fluid. Nobody would call it water. They took a few samples of it and went back. And within a few minutes the doctor slid a small glass slide into his microscope and examined the object with much satisfaction. What he saw was a tiny, gelatin-like globule. Among scientists it is known as the amoeba. It is the simplest known form of life, the so-called single cell. It had been the first thing to live on that planet, and apparently it was also the last. End of chapter 4